Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? Hey, James. How's it going? I'm doing great, thanks. Today, we're lucky enough to be welcoming Dr. Sarah Stromeyer onto the show. Sarah is a psychology lecturer and mindfulness researcher at Canterbury Christchurch University. She's got a particular interest in dose when it comes to mindfulness, and we're really excited to have her on. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Hello. To kick off, I'm interested in how you came to study dose in mindfulness in the first instance, because it's a fairly niche area of research, despite being so important. Absolutely, I agree. So when I first started with mindfulness, I worked as a research associate in a applied psychology institute in, in the UK. So it's um, mostly clinical, but also other applied psychologies. And as part of that, we had a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist who just did like a eight-week MBCT program for staff to just sort of help with, you know, everyday stress, you know, give like a taster sort of of what mindfulness is all about. It's fairly intense. So it has two and a half to three hour weekly group sessions. Then you have home practices that you do. These are like 40 minutes to up to an hour a day that you're doing. And it goes for eight weeks and then there's a retreat as well. So I really enjoyed that, but I found it quite intense as well. So I was working full time. As you know, you're doing an hour of home practice every day. So that, that seems quite intense to fit in every day, I thought for myself. But I really, really enjoyed the mindfulness aspect of it and had sort of done some of it similar to in my master's already. What I did afterwards is at Monash, there's the Future Learn course on mindfulness for well-being and peak performance, which is like an online course. And I did that one because I really enjoyed it and it had sort of lower practices. So there were maybe 10 minute practices. There are some sort of reading materials, things like that as well, but much, much shorter practices than the, the 40, 50 hour long practices. That really interested me to, to see because I found benefits in the, in the lower practices a, a lot. And I thought, what is the difference? You know, what, there are so many different programs available on mindfulness. You know, these, these eight-week programs, longer than eight-week programs. Then there's apps, there's online programs, there's self-help book-based bibliotherapy programs. And I kind of thought, well, what is, what is the best one? What is the relationship? What is the dose that you need to do? both in clinical populations, but also general populations, because people have, you know, responsibilities, they have work, they have dinner to cook, other things to do, you know, how do you, how do you know? And then I did my PhD on that to, to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, we talk about this a lot, actually, that contemplative practices are always sort of optimal within a certain bandwidth. Um, but mm. we haven't spoken about dose, but I mean, it makes sense because I think there's a kind of, it seems for me anyway, there can be a sort of thought in the contemplative communities that sort of more is better. You know, you want to be continually growing the amount and somehow if you can really sit down for a few hours a day, then that's much better than a shorter period of time. But we've had this conversation again and again, it seems in the recent weeks, that that thinking about that in a sort of linear in too much of a linear way is probably problematic, you know, that it's probably good. There's going to be a balance. There's going to be a right, a right amount of practice somewhere in the middle. That's going to be different for people. So we've been really, we've been really hot to have you on to talk about this idea of dose. That's a really good point as well. And what you're saying there, Mark, about how people start practicing, because 
because I mean, there's 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 a lot of mindfulness research out there now, but also the question is about how people start and and sometimes telling someone that's what I've come across in, in research anyway, telling someone to start in forty minute practices or fifty minute practices when they first sit down is quite it's quite long, you know, <laughs> sitting still for that long is is quite tricky for some people. For other people, it might be easier you know they might find that quite helpful a metaphor that i use quite a lot is imagine someone who wants to run a marathon right so they're sort of the first time they're put on their running shoes you wouldn't expect them to run 42 kilometers or 26 miles would you so you'd like slowly build it up maybe they go for a walk first maybe they run one kilometer maybe five kilometers maybe 10 kilometers and then slowly build that up to be able to run a marathon also the other thing is as well for running marathons not everyone wants to do that you know, some people might just keep it at 5K and then that's fine. And you still have health benefits, uh, things like that. You don't have to go to the Olympics and compete, things like that. And it's similar in mindfulness practice as well. There's a lot of benefits being found in shorter but regular mindfulness practices as well. And if that works for someone, why not have that work for some people and then for other people, longer practices? Because, you know, two things can be true for, for people, I think, as well. Yeah, and one of the interesting things when we talk about mindfulness and dose is that we have a little bit of a job on our hands just to establish what an ideal outcome is, right? Because we talk about dose and the implication is that a certain dose refers to a certain outcome. How do you even go about establishing what a good outcome is, especially given the caveat that we're all different psychologically? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's different, as you say, different outcomes, different things that you can measure as psychologists. So there's there's things like psychological well-being that you often measure through sort of self-report measures and things like that, where you can see generally how someone's doing in their everyday life. You know, there's clinical measures, there's non-clinical measures, and then obviously there's brain scans and things like that as well. So there's, there's different things we've got available. There's differences in what that means as well and how you can say is that good or bad. Uh, so often what you do is is look at what someone's baseline is and control for that. So so before they do the mindfulness practice, complete some measures and then you can see what is their normal thing. Does it, does it improve? Does it change? Does it not change? Um, things like that as well. Psychology, I think, is, is tricky also because self-report measures, you know, there's always going to be some degree of bias in them because people complete them themselves. It's interestingly, I had a, a reviewer recently, though, that said to me, who else can tell someone how they're feeling than the person themselves? You know, you can't really say like, yeah. oh, this person looks like they're happy. No. They must be happy. You know, no. that's, that's another that's thing. super challenging. Yeah. yeah. What kind of measures are you most interested in when you're thinking about dose in your research? I mean, what are you looking at that improves? Do you have a sort of subset of things that you're interested in improving in particular? Yeah. So I think my main area that, that I'm interested in is, is, is well-being measures. So things like people's depression, anxiety and stress levels, not just on a clinical level, but also sort of everyday people, you know, everyone's stressed sometimes or, or feeling down or worried about things as well. And sort of how, how mindfulness can help with that as well. On the other hand, also some brain related measures could also be interesting, although that is much more tricky with the dose question. Because, for instance, there, there's some research that has been completed about really high level dose experienced practitioners who've been practicing at a high dose for, for, you know, 20, 30 years, several decades. And often what that means, though, you can see what their brain looks like compared to people who aren't experienced meditators. Right. But you don't know what their brain looked like when they first started. No, we, right. We have no That's first another. picture, do we? So yeah. we don't really know. Yeah, yeah, so that's a little bit more tricky to do. Yeah, it's interesting too, because when we talk about mindfulness, we assume, and we've, we've just touched on this, we assume the bigger the dose, the better. 
because the gym analogy serves here. We just go, well, if you go to the gym lots of times, the evidence is you get more benefits. But, you know, just before we got on air, me and Mark were chatting. And I said, my dad, who's in theory quite eccentric, said, well, I want to do exercise, but I'm 68 years old. I want to do the least amount for the most amount of benefit. So I read this paper and got an exercise bike to do three minutes of intense exercise a week on the basis that that captured most of the curve for cardiovascular health. And the irony was he stopped because it was too much work. <laughs> That's great. I love which that. Which is beyond ridiculous. But there's a wider point here, which is like, is it possible yeah. that our assumption about mindfulness isn't so correct when it comes to the benefits and the dose? Yeah, I think it's, it's really, really interesting because at first this is not what I expected to find either with the, with the maybe starting small might be helpful. But then I talked to some different people, some Buddhists as well, so at conferences. I heard Sharon Salzberg, who's a big mindfulness researcher in the mm -hmm. field as well, saying something about that, that actually starting small is quite normal, what they do in Buddhism as well. I also saw um, you had Dzana Dorji on there. She's done some research on that said that is in traditions as well starting five ten minutes now in buddhism for instance that's sometimes younger people so children that start with these shorter practices for instance oftentimes but then building that up as well so so that's quite it's not that surprising if thinking about it a little bit more when i've spoken to people and they said yeah actually that makes sense starting with these short practices and i think also it makes things more accessible as well because in in research it, it, it was found people you know are recommended to do some mindfulness practices, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 40 minutes. And a lot of the time, people didn't differ in the amount of practice they actually did. So people who were told to do 10 minutes did just as much as, much as people who were told to do 20 minutes. And there's actually no difference. But then the people that were told do 20 minutes and they only did 10 minutes, they might feel a bit more guilty or they have done it wrong. And then that comes in as well and might not be good for their psychological well-being in that sense. This is the really interesting thing about saying, well, there are different options of dose. Because there are only options that this doesn't happen in isolation. This happens in the context of your life. So it's almost on one level silly to speak about doing an hour a day versus 10 minutes a day. If an hour a day is unsustainable given the life of the practitioner, it's a false equivalence. And there's the additional benefit beyond just the fact that you might be able to get some of the benefits of the practice with less time. There's just this point to be made that this doesn't happen in isolation and therefore we're interacting and interfacing with our psychology all the time around what is doing quite a difficult thing to sit there and eyes closed and breathing. And we miss that point so often when it comes to this conversation that like none of it counts unless we're doing it. Yes. And this is exactly that's exactly what you, what you were doing there, you know, shifting in your seat, things like that. I had that exact thing with one of my participants, where in one of my studies where I compared five minute mindfulness practices to twenty minute mindfulness practices, and one participant in the twenty minute group found it really hard. And she said, "Isn't there a shorter option?" She said, "I can't sit still for that long." And she was shifting in her seat, and she found it really, really difficult. And for that person, you know, there's other types of mindfulness practices available. So things like walking meditations are quite helpful for some people, where you know you're walking. Walking, you're feeling your feet on the floor, you could feel the wind in your hair, things like that as well. Mindfully paying attention to, to that. So for, for here's the individual differences thing again. So for some people, 20, 40, 50 minutes 
two hours might not be a problem. That that they might be really really helpful for these people. But other people, it might not be. And I think that's okay. You know, different pe- things can be helpful for different people. And then there's also things like informal mindfulness practices, like you know, mindfully brushing your teeth, mindfully doing the dishes, mindfully sitting down, drinking a cup of tea, things like that. So that that can be really helpful as well. So so just paying attention to what you're doing in the moment. It doesn't have to be something really complicated you don't need a special cushion or something in order to have some benefits for mindfulness as well so i think i think people who are listening today i think it's easy to buy into the fact that slow and progressive is a good way to train i think we can all buy into that you know that start small start slow grow slow i mean actually even though even though i'm saying that as a meditation teacher i find myself saying this a lot. So, I mean, it must not be so obvious that just like you wouldn't go to the gym and try to lift mega weight all the time from nothing, but people are so quick to do that with their minds, actually like, Oh, it's no big deal. I'll just try to do, especially very like I'm a recovering type a personality, you know, and like, (laughs) it's easy to be like, Oh, I love meditation. Wow. I had a breakthrough. So now I'm going to do three hours a day from now on um, is I think completely ridiculous. So you want to do it slowly and you want to grow up. So that's good. But what I'm really interested in is, this is the part that I think is a little less intuitive. What have you found for like the benefits of shorter practices? I mean, are, are you finding like, just like Jamie's dad found, you know, this research that even three minutes catches most of the benefits when it comes to cardiovascular health. Is there similar sorts of things like that, that you're finding in terms of dose with mindfulness? Like, is there an optimal amount or some really, like, was there anything really surprising that you found? Like, oh, wow, like, if you only do it this much, we're seeing kind of this big thing. Have you found anything like that? Yes, in a in a sense. I mean, some of these things, there, there's also a difference in mindfulness with, with things like state and trait outcomes. So normally state right. means sort of what the state you're in. So so if you might practice mindfulness and you're feeling calm and you're feeling like quite quite content in, in the moment as well, but that might not be yep. long lasting necessarily. So if you do it once, it, right. it might not, you know, be your become a habit or something that you are right, continuing because to traits are going to take more time, right? They've got to mm. be they've got to be more integrated throughout your habit yeah. system. That makes exactly. a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think in research it would be great to do a measure of continued practice over several months mm. or, or even years or something like that. That'd be fantastic to do. But again, yep. that that's quite complicated to to do and getting people to come in. But I think that's definitely some options for more research there in terms of the the optimal dose again i think that's different from person to person again and i know that's quite an annoying answer because it'd be great to be like oh do these five minutes and you you sort it that'd be great you know like a prescription drug or something i think that's again in psychology sometimes things are much more complicated than, than they seem you know but i think in my studies that i've done the, the comparing five minutes to to 20 minutes and in like a control group who, d- who just listens to something else the surprising yeah. thing there was to to find five minute practices actually being more helpful for psychological distress than the longer practices because wow. of them being so yeah, interesting isn't it yeah see that's yeah. that's the thing i wanted to hear how interesting that even five minutes of practice is going to have these these important mm. benefits and maybe even more so than the 20 minute practice with you know with beginning yeah. meditators who are trying to are trying to alleviate yeah. some cognitive distress mm, absolutely is that a reflection of the fact that five minutes beyond five minutes you start to and somehow lose the effect or is it that people struggle with the bigger dose 
I think it's more that they struggle with a bigger dose. So this in this study, I took people who were novice mindfulness practitioners. So, so people who have not done mindfulness before, who don't have a regular mindfulness practice, right? So this is different populations. Again, that general population, adults, but not engaging in mindfulness practices. I think that they hadn't done this before. So, so it was mindfulness of the breath meditation practice, and then they listened to an audiobook. And it was, I think, because it was this, again, very surprising finding because it's not what we hypothesized either. So we thought, oh, maybe 20 minutes will be better. But actually, I think it's that five minutes, this like a, a taster or sometimes getting used to this way of, of listening to something, getting used to paying attention to your breath, which, which is like a learning thing people have to get into again a little bit more as, yeah. as well. Whereas 20 minutes, yeah. it can be quite difficult already. And, and people say 20 minutes is short already, you know, this. There's longer ones as well. Now I'm starting to see a little bit from what you said a little bit earlier coming into play. You're right. From the five to the 20, there's lots of confounding factors for why that might be less beneficial. Like you have self-consciousness about your abilities to do this. You've got lots of doubt. You're new at doing this, so you don't have the skills built for it. Five minutes is easy because it's novel. 20 minutes is potentially laborious because it is challenging to start with. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what success is. And lots of people are either type A or recovering type A people like I am. And then we don't like to not be good at the things that we're doing. And we don't like to be confused. And we don't. And I think for a lot of people, we don't like to sit with our our own cognitive emotional state much. You know, we're doing a lot of distracting in our world right now. And meditation at a longer dose isn't always very comfortable. And especially if you're starting to move from states to traits and you're doing a little bit more advanced practices, it stops being something, I mean, eventually it does bring great comfort, I think, but the middle part can be a bit rocky. And so of course the higher dose is gonna come with, it's gonna come with some of its own problems, isn't it? That you're not gonna get maybe at five, you're not gonna get at five minutes. And I think it's also, I mean, doses, again, is, is a bit of a tricky term because it's quite a medical term. But, but in my research, I refer to dose as not only practice. So practice is one of the things, you know, amount of practice that you do. There's also other elements. So the, the frequency, how often you practice a week, right. how much you're recommended to practice, that can also influence how much you actually practice. If it's a group practice, if, if it's a self-help practice, there's all these different areas that also influence. So if you have a teacher, a qualified teacher, that might be quite different. You know, maybe if you had a qualified teacher, you can check in with afterwards. If you do it in a group, that might again be different. So there's lots of different elements affecting this this sort of dose, dose response relationship. Anything you found in that part that was interesting or surprising? I mean, in addition to just the length of the sit, but also frequency and suggested frequency and having a mm. teacher that's there to like check in regularly, anything there pop out? Yeah. So one I did, I did a, a large meta-regression meta-analysis, which is basically like a review of lots of different studies that have already done mindfulness programs right. and what they found. And basically for those programs, so there's, there's over 200 studies, so lots and lots of different doses of mindfulness. And what I found actually for increasing trait mindfulness after a program, more intense programs were more helpful. So actually having right. more intense programs, so more sessions a week and also more contact with a facilitator that was predicted greater levels of trait mindfulness at the end. So right. for that outcome, not for depression, anxiety, and stress, but for that outcome, no. more intense sessions and more contact was found more helpful, which makes sense because yeah. mindfulness, um, again, being a skill that's learned. So if you've got someone directly teaching you, it might be more helpful than doing it online. Again, more research needs to be done, though, because that's not a, a study, but that was what other people have said in, in the realm. That's interesting then because... 
it raises the question, why didn't it, in the same vein, help more with the depression anxiety outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few factors. So a lot of the time in the studies, people hadn't done much mindfulness before. So they had quite you know, limited knowledge of mindfulness at the beginning. And there was much more scope to increase that, you know? Yeah. Whereas, right. you know, if someone who's not done it, where someone who's, who's already got quite a high baseline level of mindfulness. On the other hand as well, sometimes people weren't necessarily clinical samples as well. So that means that they might have, you know, low levels of depression, anxiety and stress to start with and high doses might not have changed that so much and low doses might have been more helpful. Other things that I found as well is greater recommended practices actually were found to have higher levels of anxiety and depression at follow-up. So sometimes it's, it's one to four months follow-up, which was interesting. But again, difficult. We don't know what happens between the post program and the follow up for these studies. So they, they didn't check in or, or, or see how much people actually practiced in that period. But it could be that people that were recommended to practice for longer, maybe the 40 minutes, maybe up to an hour a day, they might have found that too challenging to keep up with you know, in their everyday life, away from the, from the yeah. group. Whereas people who were told maybe do five or 10 minutes, they might have continued with that. That's a, a theory. We don't know if that's what people did, but it would make sense, you know, that that happened. Yeah. The other thing where the word dose is interesting is, you know, it's medical, but it often refers to medicine. And with medicine, you have one variable, which is how much you're taking, but you also have the frequency of taking. And, you know, compared to Mark with the one hour you mentioned, well, that's 12 doses of five minutes. But it seems to me that if you spent one hour on day one doing an hour versus 12 days in a row of five minutes it seems like you're doing quite a different activity there as far as the brain is concerned and i was wondering whether that came through in your research yeah so that's a different that that's a difference there so you've got the dose of a single practice and then you've got the dose of the total practices that you do so for instance as well if you sometimes someone who does five minutes but does that more regularly might end up with more at the end you know quantity wise than someone who doesn't an, an hour once and then nothing afterwards so for mindfulness, I think generally regularity is more important than doing something once and then nothing. So, so it's all about training your mind, getting your mind used to things and then doing these informal mindfulness practices that I mentioned as well, sort of, you know, being more mindful in, in everyday life as well. Yeah, right. Because there's an analogy here, isn't there, with the leaking bucket and the mindfulness is great, but the dose of the formal practice must be sort of supported by the dose of the everyday practice which i think people can quite typically find easier yes absolutely and i think that's that's again where where it's slightly different from from medicine maybe if you if someone had maybe an allergic reaction you give give them an epipen and they're fine you know sort of thing and then that's that's done until the next allergic reaction maybe but in in psychology i think our minds are much more complex it's like there's a lot of stress going on all the time and unfortunately that's just how it is it's not going to go away because we do a mindfulness practice once you know there's going to be more and sort of training your mind to become as you say the stress bucket as well so keeping that keeping that low because there'll be more things coming in but sort of being able to to work with that being able to feel less anxious less worried about things but being in in the present moment as well not worrying about the past ruminating about the past and not worrying about future things what's going to happen next because that's all the things that then fill fill the stress yeah, and there's also, I mean, just this conversation is bringing out for me how many different uses of mindfulness there really are. Because you really can use mindfulness as an attempt to blow up your initial perceptions of what it is to be a self and a human being on this planet. 
but you can also use it to help you manage your day. We never speak about this enough, how linked dose actually in fact is to your specific outcome you have in mind, and probably as a result, the importance of clarifying your outcome. Yeah, so no wonder we're running into, some people are running into trouble, right? Because you're not thinking about dose. Well, maybe not, you're maybe not thinking clearly about dose, Jamie. I mean, you're exactly right, you know, like figure out what your goal is for practicing in these ways and then consider the right dose. Consider where you are on the training program. Remember that it is a training. I mean, Sarah, I mean, you just keep saying it again and I hear it again and again as you say, mind training, mind training. And it is a training. You're going to a sort of mental gym here and you're training something. So to get clear about what your goal is and to get clear about where you are and then to select the right dose and to remember that the dose is going to change depending on what you're trying to develop and where you are in your training cycle. I mean, that even happens for athletes, right? Some days you train harder, some days you train weaker. And for a good athlete, you're going to know when the big days are, when the high load days are, and when the low load days are. But I don't hear, and I would love to hear more of this because I definitely practice like this. I don't hear a lot of people talking about this manual adjusting for optimal outcomes, but we could be, we could maybe be thinking about that like that. Yeah. And I think, again, that's, that's, um, it's interesting what you said, Jamie, as well, and, and, and Mark, looking at what is, what is it that you're trying to find out as well. So another analogy that I use sometimes, because I, I like analogies, it's nice. Yeah, it's like exactly. Someone, <laughs> you know, it's like someone, <laughs> if you're trying to learn a language, right, say like someone wants to learn Italian because they want to go on holiday and, and order an ice cream or something like that, right? So that you, you've got that level of this is my goal, that's what I want to do. I want to go to Italy, order an ice cream or something. But if someone wants to like go to Italy, go to university, you know, do intellectual conversations with Italian, read Dante, you know, in the read Dante, things like that. Yeah. Exactly, that might be a different goal, and then you might need to adjust yeah. the amount of practice that you do Italian learning practice. Similarly, that might be might be similar in mindfulness as well. Yeah, exactly. So you want to. So you've got a little bit of pain. Like my mom was just dealing with hip pain and she did the Headspace app on pain, which I think Headspace is just such a great way to like, you know, it's such a soft edged way of doing meditation, I think, because you know, it's very short, they're low doses. And she had a real, she had real epiphany, you know, she started looking at her pain a couple minutes a day, actually changed her relationship with her pain and really had a different experience of her relationship with pain. She doesn't need to do more than that. That's all she wanted out of it. She wanted to, well, she's got in a little bit of persistent low grade pain. She just wanted to work a little bit with her her own appreciation, her own approach to pain. And so a very low dose over a very low amount of frequency over a short period of time was all she needed to kind of get the habit of being like, oh, I'm in a bit of pain. Wait, let me take a look at it rather than turning away from it. And wow, look, like it is just sort of signals in the body rather than being something totally weird. And look, I feel good in all of these other places, even though I have a little pain here. She was able to pick that up in low doses, low set, but that was it. I think that's fantastic. It's great that that worked for your mum as well. And it's not to say yeah. that longer mindfulness practices aren't helpful. There's lots of research saying that the high doses are really, really helpful. There's also individual differences there for what people want and also what helps people to get started with, to continue with. You know, I think I think it's great to have a variety of different things. I think that that's good. Yeah. So just one thing I want to just pull out there and say out loud, because I think it's important and it comes up now, how good it is for us as a contemplative community, because most people who are coming on the show are also people who are doing these practices, and I definitely am, to remember that like, just like with medicine and just like exercise, being mindful of what you're after and being mindful of the outcomes and then adjusting the dose relative 
to those things seems like a really wholesome and a really protective practice, you know, because then you can watch and you can monitor. Oh, that's not quite enough. Let's lift it up. Oh, that seems to be a little bit too much stress and strain. Let's lower it down. And you would do that with medication as well. And you would do it with exercise prescription as well. You know, my wife is a physio and she's all the time toggling people's exercise regimes based on the outcomes. And though you don't know the outcomes at first, you have to be like, how is it going? Oh, it's going good. Great. Then, you know, keep going or it's not going well, then let's adjust. And maybe if we could think about our contemplative training programs like that, I think that would be beneficial. Yeah. Something else that's just emerging here too is Mark, you said your mum kind of learnt the technique and now can apply that. So she heard the clip, did the practice, and now that same practice can be applied. And there's effectively two things happening here, right? One is you can learn a technique. Now, part of that is doing it and part of it is like, this is the thing you do, like an instruction. Right. And that's a slightly different thing to your brain needs to change by doing the repetition of mindfulness. And it seems like a lot of the benefits of mindfulness takes that instructive element. Like you just need to nail the first bit, try it a few times, and now that's in the locker. And it seems like that would be a very good reason why low doses are effective because you can carry the lessons forward. That's a really good point that, that you make it there. I think it's it's also about in, instructed, so guided practices. So a lot of the time earlier on, people have guided practices. So someone saying, you know, reminding people to concentrate on their breath in, in apps they do that a lot like headspace inside time i come all those but a lot of the time people who are more experienced meditators they have less guided practices as well where that skill element comes in so it's it's like learning that skill knowing what to do first in and i think that's that's where it's again similar to other skills that you might be learning you know maybe learning a language is skills like that later on you don't need to go on your Facebook or, or whatever it is you're looking yeah, at. Yeah. And I think that's that's the same with, with that. And I think often with mindfulness, because it's it's a different way, it can be helpful to start small and start at, at like, oh, okay, this is a different thing I'm doing now, rather than starting with long practices, which does help for some people, but I think for others as well, it can be quite tricky. And just getting used to things slowly because your mum might have I'm assuming if someone said oh sit down and do an hour and a half of this practice no. she might have been like no, no. that's no, no. It, would, it would have <laughs> yeah. much worse outcomes it would have yeah. totally worse outcomes of course it would have had worse outcomes Absolutely. or she might not have done it at all you know no, that's a lot of the things sure. that we see as well no. um, and I exactly think there's, right. there's a lot of assumptions as well with with mindfulness contemplative practices as well that you need to have some sort of baseline skills to be able to do that. You need to be a certain calm person. You need to be able to sit cross-legged, all these other things, which is not true, yeah. which not, you don't no. have to do. But I think sometimes there's these assumptions of what, what you need to be able to do in order to get the benefits, in order to, to have some something helpful coming from it as well. But there's also a practical edge here, right? Because for meditators on sort of both ends of the objective spectrum, on the one hand, I just want to improve my life a little bit. And on the other, I'm a, ser a serious practitioner. Dose is important and dose is something you actually wrestle with without realizing you're wrestling with every time you make a decision to practice. So my first question is, what is the practical edge to this advice or of this research for beginners? I think that's a that's a great question because I think a lot of the time as, a, as an academic or scientist, we answer all of these questions. We've got all of these things that we want to find out and then we find them out and then we publish them and then 
it doesn't really reach outside of academia or sometimes it does. So I think that's one of the, the important things, especially with things like well-being outcomes or, or things that people can do to help with their well-being or improve their lives and, and something that they might find helpful for pain management, like, like your mum or people being stressed and having lots to do. And something that can help, not that it is a panacea because that's the, the other end of the extreme because that, that's quite dangerous as well. Mindfulness is seen as like the cure for everything. Yeah. But I think yeah, definitely, definitely there is something that can be helpful in in this practical side of things that you can do brief mindfulness practices you can build these up maybe have these regularly and then it can help you in your in your effort everyday life it can help you not everyone as well so some people might mm. not find it helpful and that's fine as well they might find you know going for a walk more helpful or exercising or whatever yeah and what about those who are on sort of the deep end of the spectrum and consider themselves fairly serious practitioners mm. That's another thing that I'm looking at at the moment and, and looking at experienced meditators and how that looks differently to, to novice meditators or non-meditators because I think that would be something really interesting to explore further as well. So I've done quite a bit of research with these novice meditators who, you know, limited previous experience of mindfulness, haven't done much of it. But I'd also like to look into more what motivates someone to go further you know what is is there an element of individual differences what makes someone want to sit down and practice maybe for an hour or two hours or go on these longer retreats what is the mechanism there and how how do they find it helpful also if they didn't do that how would it impact their their lives you know what would the difference be if they stopped practicing mindfulness that's quite a difficult thing to research though because you don't want to tell people not to do something that they find helpful you know <laughs> again yeah. that's that's quite yeah. tricky to, to do we'd like you to sit on the couch now for yeah. a month and just watch, uh, just watch netflix yeah. <laughs> go and exercise and we want exactly. to see what happens <laughs> yeah exactly also on, on both of those ends i think there are so many questions to to be answered what motivates someone to do that what is their practice why did it change why did they start practicing why did they increase the practice what is the most benefit that they find out about that and and i think there's a lot of a lot of areas there to explore as well would be great sarah thank you so much for coming on where can everybody find you online yeah thank you very much for having me i've got a, a few things you can find me on twitter at, at sarah stromeyer i also have a website which is sarahpsychology.com which might be easier to spell but yeah those twitter or, or website would be good sarah thanks so much for coming on and everyone thank you for listening wherever you are this has been the contemplative science podcast and as always we will see you next week so thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 